election administration is not the horse race, it's the track. And it's making sure that all the candidates are able to run a fair race. And at the end of the day, the American people are able to make their voice heard. And we respect that. I really like working in this area that I think has so much room for bipartisanship, that has room for common ground, and is really just about making sure that Americans are able to make their voice heard in our democracy. You're entering the voting booth. I'm John Fortier of the American Enterprise Institute. And I'm Don Palmer with the Election Assistance Commission. This is a podcast that looks at the inner workings of elections. And we're continuing our episode with the Election Assistance Commission. We're going to talk to each of the commissioners, and we are welcoming Commissioner Ben Hovland. Ben is a member of the commission, was previously on the Senate Rules Committee handling elections, also has a background in elections with the Missouri Secretary of State. So he's he's been at the state level in Congress and now at the Election Assistance Commission. Here, of course, with Don Palmer, a fellow commissioner also of Ben's, and we're going to talk about some of the priorities of the EAC and especially ones that Ben are interested in. So, John, do you want to start? Sure, I'll start, John. Thank you. Welcome, Ben. Commissioner Hovland. Thank uh, you. Great to be here. One of the things that I'd like you to talk about is the clearinghouse department. You know, when we came to the commission, I'm not sure we had much of a clearinghouse. And so if you could talk to the, to the listeners about the, what the clearinghouse department does and what are some of the goals and sort of products they've been producing. Absolutely. Thanks for that. You know, I think you're exactly right, Don. I think the the Help America Vote Act that created the Election Assistance Commission created this responsibility to be a federal clearinghouse for best practices in election administration. But I think that was one of the least defined roles for the EAC and sort of one of the least explored in the early days of the agency, some of that related to funding. But in the last several years, we've been able to really expand that function and and lean into it. And I think it's been critical at this time when there are so many challenges facing election administration and election administrators across the country. And some of the ways I really think about it is, you know, this is the part of the EAC where we're able to take advantage of decentralized election administration, take advantage of the 50-state vantage point that we have and look across the country for those best practices, look at the different ways that, that election administrators run elections across the country and highlight those areas that may help their colleagues across the country. And so, you know, some of the things that I think about, you know, recently I've gotten a lot, I've heard a lot of positive feedback around a continuity of operations template that we put out. But in some ways, one of the simplest ways that I think about the clearinghouse products are are certainly, you know, as commissioners, we have ideas, but our clearinghouse division that we've created is, is a number of former local election administrators. And, and for so many of them, we were able to just say, hey, what are some of the things that that you wish you would have had when you were in your old job? And then we can say, you know, go forward and make those for your for your colleagues around the country to help them better serve their voters. Yeah, maybe if I could take you back. You mentioned HAVA, Help America Vote Act, and and you know one of the this was a, not an agency that existed before HAVA, and you know, Congress is thinking, well, what do we want this for? And one of the reasons was, you know, we have such a decentralized election system that Washington doesn't even really have a great eyeball on how things are being done across the country. Administrators, you mentioned that they they talk to each other, they have they have uh, associations, they share some practices, but where can you go to find 
really great best practices or, or what your colleagues are doing. You've also interest, you're interested in voters and voters thinking about, well, well what, what should I know about elections? What's right? What's wrong? What's misinformation? So maybe you could talk to all three of those things, sort of a window into Washington, people <laughs> for Washington to see what's going on, thinking about the administrators and also for the voters. Well, John, I appreciate the, the free range here to talk about whatever I want. So in seriousness, I do think that when you hit on those things, There are real advantages to our decentralized system. I think we saw that a lot during the pandemic. In particular, it was highlighted. You had states that had spent decades transitioning to full vote by mail, and they were able to help their colleagues who only had, you know, weeks or months to ramp up the the volume of vote by mail uh, that they were going to have during the pandemic. But you see this in other areas as people are able to try out different policies or, or serve their voters in different ways. I think of things like online voter registration that started in Arizona and then went to Washington and then, you know, has spread to over 40 states because those early states were able to prove, you know, our voters like this and it saves us money. And this is, you know, just a good governance, customer service sort of best practice. But the downside in my mind are one of the challenges, I guess, presented by that decentralization is around the mis- and disinformation area. I think it's very easy to get inaccurate information around elections. For those of us that live in the the Washington, D.C. area, our, our nightly news, our local news, they'll say, oh, early voting started today. And maybe it did in Virginia that has 45 <laughs> days of early voting, uh, but it didn't start in West Virginia, D.C., or Maryland. And so, you can imagine how things like social media have amplified that and, and really created a world where, where voters need to understand where they can get that trusted source information, their, their state and local election officials. And so, you know, I think one of the things that we can do with the clearinghouse function is create resources that, that help those local election officials provide accurate information to their voters, provide information to their voters that, you know, maybe using templates that we create that are a little catchy. Not many not many offices have graphic designers on staff. So, you know, designing templates where they can put their information in, but maybe it's it's set up by professionals to catch people's eye. You mean uh, you and Don aren't drawing all these pretty <laughs> graphs and, and helpful uh, hints here? I, I wish we were, but, uh, but you caught us. It is not us. We do have a very, we got a great team. We've got some great contractors who who do a lot of this work. And again, I think of, you know, there's just the real efficiencies across the country. You know, we are a small agency, but there are these economies of scale where if we can create a template that gets used across the country, you can really see the amplified impact of that. And I think of things like, you know, we created National Poll Worker Recruitment Day, and then it was so popular there was demand for another day, so we created Help America Vote Day. Both of these days of action are really to to educate and raise awareness around the importance of poll workers and helping to recruit poll workers. And we've seen over 40 states engage on those days, use the hashtags, use the toolkits that we've provided for social media. And we've heard from a number of jurisdictions where they just see this huge spike in citizens volunteering to serve as poll workers on those days because there is this increased attention that pops up in someone's feed and gets their awareness and makes them think of, oh, I could serve my community in this way. I didn't know that. So, you know, those are things that I think we've seen a real positive impact in recent years that we've been able to to help facilitate. 
so just you know wrapping up the the clearinghouse you know one of the things that i think about uh, ben was was the supply chain shortage issues and how the team really stepped up for that and we were you know i think the eac was able to provide you know some trusted information on that could you describe that process um, how the eac might play a role in sort of at the federal level and a supportive role in some of the national challenges we have absolutely so you know one thing that i think has been really important that we've done in the last few years. The Help America Vote Act created three advisory boards for us. And then we, as an agency, administratively created a fourth recently called the Local Leadership Council. And that's made up of current or former leadership in the state associations of local election officials. And I know that's a mouthful, but but it's really those those leaders of the local election officials in their state. And that has given us a great communication vehicle when issues come up, like, like Don was talking about, where, you know, in 2022, there was concerns about supply chain issues around, around paper for ballots, around envelopes. There was interest from the federal government if this was, you know, an area that needed intervention, needed needed the weight of the federal government to step in. But with the decentralized nature of elections, it's often, it's a very often hard to fully assess what that looks like across the country. And so using our clearinghouse team, working with our advisory boards, you know, we were able to kind of quickly survey those folks and get a snapshot across the country and, and share that with, with national security partners, with other federal partners, to be able to know how best to respond to the needs of election officials around the country. Now, I, I know you're also interested in the grant process. And maybe, again, to go back to HAVA, you think about, again, one of the reasons the agency was created was because this was the first time there was going to be federal money going out to the states and localities for running elections, including federal elections. And the entity that is giving this money out in grants and, and report having reports on it and telling us what, what it was all spent for is the EAC. And, of course, the EAC for a while, there was there was no federal funding, but we've gotten back into several rounds of, of federal funding. So do you want to talk a little bit about the grant process, what kinds of things you're working on and how you're improving it? What's current about the, the granting process? Yeah, thanks for that question, John. You know, I think that the grants is a, is a huge area. I think it's critically important for election administration. There's often a debate about who is best positioned to pay for elections, and the HAVA dollars have made a huge difference. Since 2002, there's been over $4 billion in HAVA money. Like you said, there was there was about a decade where we didn't see any, but it came back uh, in 2018. There was security, HAVA security grant money. We saw $380 million in 2018, $425 million in 2020. There was $400 million in CARES Act for responding to the pandemic. And then we've seen $75 million in each of the past two fiscal years. So you've seen you know, a little over a billion dollars since 2018 put into elections. And it's really gone to, to do so many things to help improve the security of elections. We've seen numerous jurisdictions and states across the country replace paperless equipment. We've seen an investment in, of hardening systems around cybersecurity concerns, countless hours of training again around you know primarily cybersecurity we've seen physical hardening of offices and really innovations things like Illinois created a cyber navigator program and this is to take this is recognizing that that not all counties you know maybe have the need for a 
an election cybersecurity expert on staff, maybe don't have the resources for that. And so the state created a number of those positions with regional responsibilities. And again, to me, this is a model that leans into and recognizes the decentralized nature of elections, but uses that and, and used HAVA money as seed money to get that program started. And And really, when I look out across so many, if not every, most most major innovations in election administration since HAVA in 2002, there's HAVA money somewhere in there. You know, it may, I'm not saying, you know, we get all the credit for it. Certainly not. Uh, certainly, you know, state and local election administrators have been those innovators, but that's seed money to help them put in place a great program that, again, can show can show other election administrators around the country that this is a viable path forward, that this is a great way to serve your voters, that this is a great way to make sure that your elections, you know, are safe, secure, accurate, and accessible. So I'd like to follow up a little bit on the grant funding. Uh, you know, Ben, you served at the uh, state level. You served at the federal level. You, you served in the Congress. And so our listeners may be uh, election administrators and maybe the public, but what is the case to be made that this is truly, you know, election grants at the federal level is a federal state partnership. And it's not just the federal government inserting itself into elections. You know, what's the case to be made that these grant programs are beneficial? Yeah, you know, and I think with the the rundown of my career history, I think that's an official hat trick for those of you keeping scored. But you know, I think, you know, this is always something that people wrestle with when they talk about grants, you know, what both one is, is it the federal government's role to to fund elections? And, and you know, I've always been of the position that, that state and local governments are primarily responsible for running elections. They're primarily responsible for funding elections. Uh, but there's a federal portion of the ballot. And, and in recent years, we've been you know, reminded that it's a national security issue with the 2017 designation as critical infrastructure. There are a, a number of federal issues there. And of course, there's a number of federal laws that, that are mandates on states. And so I think it's fair that there's a federal portion of the ballot. But I think Congress has done a very good job with the HAVA dollars of making those resources flexible. And again, that allows for innovation, which I think is important to the space. But it also recognizes that not all jurisdictions are in the same place. You know, I remember talking a lot about, you know, in in early 2017, talking about cybersecurity, you know, there were a number of offices, you know, people wanted all the fanciest bells and whistles for election administrators across the country. And I, I would certainly hope for that. But, you know, there were a number of offices that were running you know, old, outdated operating systems because they only had dot matrix printers. And so, you know, really they needed new printers in order to be able to update their other computer software. And so, you know, what those needs are really does vary across the country. Again, we saw states replace paperless systems. Obviously, that provides a large amount of security, it provides audibility, a number of important things, but other states had already done that. And so, uh, you know, maybe didn't, you know, clearly didn't need to have prescriptive funding that said, oh, it's only to do this, whereas they were able to use that for something like the Cyber Navigator program I mentioned earlier, or other innovations to address, you know, their specific concerns. So often you hear the argument, well, we don't want strings attached to federal funding. And, you know, HAVA funds don't really have a lot of strings, do they? They're pretty flexible. 
That's right. You know, generally, I mean, again, there are recommended areas and, and it has to be, you know, it has to be about improving federal elections. So so certainly there's that tie in. And then it, it has to be related to elections. You know, we we certainly occasionally get questions from offices about about using things that may have multiple benefits. Again, so many so many election offices have other responsibilities. And so you know, one of the things is is making sure that that the funding is going for elections. But but for the most part, you know, it's pretty light to no strings funding as far as federal funding goes. First, let me uh, jump in with an intervention because I think all of us are guilty of this. And most of our listeners are, are pretty knowledgeable of election restriction. But HAVA is, of course, the Help America Vote Act. And the money that comes from this, of course, came from the original act. But the subsequent uh, funding is also often referred to as, as HAVA funds. So, again, we, we have a, a broad set of listeners out there and, and we want to clarify that. But one last point on the on the grants. So when people want to know how that money was spent, you're getting reports back. What can you tell us about the way you put that out there, the way people could get access to that, the way Congress starts to see how that how that money's being spent? What's the what's the follow-up process, reporting process, and, and if you're trying to improve that? Thanks for that. Yeah. So all that information is on our website at EAC.gov. We we have reports, the states file reports with us multiple times a year that you know again there's a little bit of a lag on that reporting to you know typically the end of the fiscal year for example and then you get it a couple months later as as that was the cutoff but then people have to to process that and so again we provide that transparency on our website it's there but but another layer that that the EAC has implemented our office of inspector general is an independent inspector general and and she uh, and her office oversee auditing that funding around the country and so so again this is a, a layer to make sure that that taxpayer funds are being used accordingly but again so we have the dual layers of, of both the transparency on our website but then the follow through by our inspector general to audit those funds and then and then she provides reports on those audits and and you can see the accounting for the spending of those funds well we typically end our sessions with a guest by asking them two questions. So I'm going to ask the the first one, and I'll let Don close out the show with the with the with the second one. And the first one is this: you know, tell us how you got into elections or election administration, and then if you could go back and talk to your pre-election self and say, you know, what do I know now that you really should have known and needed to know? What what would that be? Yeah. So I stumbled into election administration a little bit through campaigns. Again, it depends how you define things. So I kind of stumbled into campaigns out of college. So my sort of pre-election self, I'll be honest, wasn't that bright. So I don't know what I'd go back and and tell myself in my uh, in my early twenties. Probably a lot that I wouldn't listen to. But but certainly, you know, it, it's been a great career so far. And I was I was so glad to find election administration from campaigns. I I enjoyed the time working on there, but I knew it just wasn't quite right. And, you know, I, I think for so many people, the two kind of get conflated. So I've done a lot of time thinking about how they're different. Sometimes I talk about how I think election administration is like politics adjacent. Uh, you know, it, it is, to me, election administration isn't about politics. It's about good governance and customer service. But you can see the politics. You can watch it and kind of be a spectator. So I like that part of it. But, uh, you know, I think a lot of the times one of the things that I think is unfortunate is I think a lot of the times the coverage of election administration, I think a lot of the times the reporters are, are 
campaign reporters and they they do double duty and so a lot of the times they frame it in that similar horse race fashion of you know will they get new voting equipment in time or you know will they get the newest type of audit or whatever it is and you know sometimes i use that analogy to to talk about how election administration is not the horse race it's the track and it's making sure that that all the candidates are able to run a fair race and at the end of the day the american people are able to make their voice heard and we respect that i really like uh, working in this area that I think has so much room for bipartisanship, that has room for common ground, and is really just about making sure that Americans are able to make their voice heard in our democracy. So, Ben, the second question we ask is, you know, we'd like our guests to tell us about a funny or unusual event that's occurred during the course of your career. And we've all seen just about everything, but we like to highlight sort of the humorous or unusual aspect that you recall during your, your time in elections. You know, <laughs> I'm sure there's a lot. You could break news well, here. Well, uh, look, yeah. if, you, if, well, you can, if you can't remember one, I mean, the analogy you made about the how much money goes into elections versus the St. Louis waste oh, disposal, oh. that's a, <laughs> or the... I, I mean, it's not, an, a, it's not a humorous event, but it is sort of humorous. But I'll let you decide how you want to approach it. Well, I, I'll tie to, I'll, I'll clarify that, and, you know, but they're both tied to Missouri. And so so one of those things was, was early on at the commission, you know, realizing what Don was alluding to is in our early days at the commission, sort of looking at our budget, looking at all the expectations. I was talking to a friend from Kansas City about our, our budget, and she was like, that's less than we spend on potholes in Kansas City. And, and I <laughs> looked it up, and, and sure enough, it was true. So I shared that, shared that with Congress, shared that on the news. And, you know, lo and behold, our budget started going up. Interestingly, the, the Kansas City pothole budget also started going up. And so while we've made a lot of strides, we're not quite keeping pace with the Kansas City pothole budget. So that's pretty remarkable on their part. And I, I think their roads are probably a lot smoother for it. But, um, you know, the other one that I thought about that I like, when I was at the Missouri Secretary of State's office, so I was I was in the Secretary of State's office before I'd ever been a poll worker. And, uh, you know, I think we hear a lot of stories from people that get into this. You know, they were a poll worker and they kind of look into it a little bit more. Well, I was I was already in election administration, but I wanted to serve as a poll worker. And so I signed up for a municipal election where where we had, you know, didn't have any responsibility for that. And number one, it was very eye-opening. I quickly realized why we were getting a certain number of phone calls every election. And I was like, okay, well, make a note of that. We'll fix that. But then the other part, so Missouri Missouri has been in a years-long back and forth around around photo ID. And so at the secretary's office, we had been creating voter education material about what the acceptable IDs in Missouri were, because there's a lot of confusion about it. And because it kept changing, I had proofed that poster, I mean, dozens of times from the council's office. And and so I was being a poll worker, and I, the poll worker next to me and a voter were in a debate about what was a valid form of ID, and, and the poll worker was unfortunately incorrect. And I just you know, without looking, but I knew the poster was behind us. I leaned over to him and I said, you know, I whispered to him, I was like, yeah, the voter's correct. It's number four on the poster behind you. And and after he turned around and, and after the voter left, he's like, wow, you really knew that poster. I hadn't told him what my day job was. So he was he was not aware of how many times I had seen that poster, but, but it was a valuable experience and I was glad to be able to help out. 
Ben Hovland, Commissioner in the EAC, thank you for joining us on The Voting Booth. Thank you, Ben. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Voting Booth, a podcast of the American Enterprise Institute. This program was produced by Jay Hun Lee and hosted by John Fortier and Don Palmer. If you enjoyed this episode, we encourage you to subscribe to The Voting Booth wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks again for listening and tune in next time.